Good morning. Good morning. You guys are awake this morning. Uh, as Kyle said, I am Rob Green, and I'm one of the elders here at Covenant. And before we start, let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this service, for the family we have here, for the kids, for the visitors, um, just for the ability to be here. I pray that you bless this word uh, that we are about to study, and you be with us. Help me to stay calm and not fall off stage. And uh, Help the kids to enjoy and learn. In your name, amen. Amen. So I have a question to start this sermon off with you guys. And if you guys will throw up the first image there. Hopefully you can see this back there. The question is, which of these do you think is more dangerous? So on the left, we have a shark, more terrifying. On the right, we have what I wish my backyard looked like right now. All right, so I'll give you a second. You're going to have to humor the professor in me, right, because we we do this kind of thing. So if you think the shark is more terrifying, and kids, I see you guys out there, you have to weigh in on this too. I know you have an opinion. If you think the shark is more terrifying, raise your hand. Okay, that's pretty good. That's pretty fair. I can see those of you who didn't raise your hand, you're the skeptics. You're already, hmm. So who thinks the pool is more dangerous? Okay. That's a little more even than I thought, but I, I think that easily goes to the shark. You know, I, I could, when I was doing this, I could only think of one thing that was actually more terrifying than these two side by side, um, and that was these two together. <laughs> so hopefully your backyard never looks like this. Uh, but I tell you this for a reason. Okay. Everybody's scared of sharks. Okay. We just actually got back from the Outer Banks. Everybody's, don't get eaten by a shark. Right? Don't get eaten by the shark. So I, uh, I looked up the highly reputable sharkattackdata.com. And in there, I found, found that in 2017, there were 155 incidents of shark attack. 88 of those were unprovoked, meaning they were people not doing things dumb enough to get attacked by sharks. 53 of those were in the U.S., and nobody died. In fact, there's only been 144 people that have died by shark attack since 1900. Last year in 2017, in pools and spas, 163 children under the age of 15 died. Of those 70%, so almost three-fourths, almost 120 individuals were under five years old. And of those, you think, ah, they're all in Florida on this. Seven were in Ohio. Seven were right here. So I tell you this story for a reason. We actually just got back from a wonderful Dali family vacation. So most of you know the Dali, so you know how awesome this vacation was. Down in the Outer Banks. And, you know, we got geared up for this trip, a two-day trip down. We get the kids in the car. Miracle of miracles. I have three kids, five and a half, three and a half, and one and a half. And Nathan thinks he's one of my kids. Um, we get in the car and we start going, miracle of miracles, we leave early, it's awesome, we're driving down, we get to Breezewood, we take some pit stops, we saw the uh, Flight 93 Memorial, my wife's a big like forensic history buff, she's been watching 9-11 documentaries forever now, and we stopped out there and the kids loved it, and you know, a 12-hour day one, we end up in Richmond, we're in the hotel, it's awesome, we go swimming, we have a great time, dinner, great, next day, pack up the car, get it going, Four and a half, five hours down there, and we get, I don't know how many of you have been to the Outer Banks in North Carolina. We get down there around like the Kitty Hawk, Nags Head area, and the anticipation starts to build, right? You start to see the shops, 
the wings, the boardwalk, the sand, and you can feel it, but it's the outer banks, so we still have an hour. <laughs> and we get through this stop and go, stop and go, and I think Mark's brother, Liz's uncle, described it most aptly when he said that last hour, it's like you're driving off the end of the earth. Somehow you get to the edge of the coast, the beach, and you just start going down and down, and you're just driving down for an hour. And we get finally get to these houses, right? And this is awesome. Everybody's pumped. We get the van unpacked. The kids are getting up. We rip the soft top off the car. We're throwing the stuff in the elevator, right? This was, I, did I mention this was a big vacation? 29 people, okay? So this was not small. There are 29 people, 11 children. 10 of them are under six, okay? Just to give you a picture here, we get everything ready. You know, everybody's excited. We have pools. There's the ocean. And the kids come out and they say, Yo, can we swim? Can we swim? Some of them are already in there. Of course. So we get the swimmies on the kids. And I don't know if you guys have seen modern puddle jumpers. Okay? When I was a kid, we did this thing where we put these water muscles, the water wings, the things you blew up, right? So, you know, it was, you slid these things on, which you couldn't, so you deflated them, right? So, okay, so less, less effective already. And you're basically like, here, like, please don't drown, okay? We hope this holds you up. Now we have these awesome puddle jumpers that have the wings with this big band that clicks in the back. So the kid is fixed, okay? Nothing's happening here. So we get those on the kids. Somebody left a little kiddie pool, and we're like, this is awesome. My youngest, you know, Gemma, we get her in there. The kids are in the pool. We're talking to great-grandma June. We're watching the kids doing this. My three-and-a-half-year-old, Peyton, comes up to me and says, Daddy, I want to play with Gemma. Okay, that's cool. She's like, I want to take my swimmy off. Okay, it's a kiddie pool. Like, we're good, right? Like, take your swimming off. So, you know, she drops it, swimming off, and we're like, hey, this is good. They're playing here. They're in the pool. I'm talking to June, family. Like, Gavin's over here. We're all good. Liz is upstairs unpacking the whole time. My wife, Liz, is unpacking. God bless her heart. Um, Because if I would have unpacked, it would have been terrible. (laughs) So she's unpacking, and she comes out on the balcony to ask me something. And I hear from above me, Rob, Rob, Rob! And I turn around to one of the most terrifying things I have ever seen as a parent. My little girl, my three-and-a-half-year-old princess, not struggling, not splashing or thrashing, floating, arms out, hair floating in the water, completely undisturbed. And honestly, she couldn't have been there more than five or ten seconds. But of course, right, I'm up, I run over, I grab her. I mean, I swear I could have lifted that whole pool. Um, I picked her up. She's over my knee. I'm patting her on the back. She's coughing out water. She's okay. I'm hugging her. We're together. You know, mommy, mommy. And I look up and I'm like, Liz, she wants you. Come down. Liz is up to help. She's like, right? Like, no, Liz, come down. Come on, come down. And she comes down and, you know, thank God Peyton's okay. But that's not the end, right? Because now we're traumatized. We just drove for two days straight. We're exhausted. Kids don't sleep in hotels, and they don't sleep on vacation. So we're tired. And here we are. How many of you adults, or even some of you kids, how many of you guys have heard of secondary drowning? Dry drowning in the news? Right? So we're terrified, obviously. So here I am. We haven't slept. We've been driving. And I set the alarm on my watch. And every two hours, I'm up checking Peyton. Is she breathing? Is she blue? Did anything happen? All this kind of stuff. So this leads us to a really important question. 
Where was Peyton's healthy fear of the water? Why would she throw off this swimmy and walk straight into the water? Why would she do this? And that fear, that lack of fear, impacted not only her, but us, right? Our family is now traumatized. We're exhausted, and you guys know this, right? All of a sudden, sometime in my early 30s, if I started waking up at night and I don't get enough sleep, it takes me like three weeks to recover. Okay, so we're fried. And not only that, we're laying in bed. I'm supposed to get up in two hours and check on her. I can't fall asleep. Why? Because all I can see is Peyton in the pool, arms out, hair floating in the water, and that's all I can think about. Every time I close my eyes, that's what I see. So you see, her lack of fear, her lack of this healthy fear impacted her. It impacted everybody around her. So we want to ask this question this morning, going to Proverbs, is where is your lack of fear? Where is your lack of fear? And we'll start this with Proverbs 1-7, which I think all of you guys know. Proverbs 1-7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. We know this verse, and this is sort of a funny phrase, this fear of the Lord. We don't like to talk about it. But if you dig into the Bible, dig into Proverbs, you see more of it. Proverbs 10.27, the fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked will be cut short. Proverbs 16.6, through love and faithfulness, sin is atoned for, through through fear of the Lord, evil is avoided. In Proverbs 24, we have, my son, fear the Lord and the king. Don't join with those who do otherwise, for disaster will arise suddenly from them. And who knows the ruin that will come from them both? And if you dig further and further, this is a major theme in Scripture. My favorite, one of my favorite books of the Bible sums it up best, and that's Ecclesiastes. Obviously, nobody's favorite book of the Bible is Ecclesiastes except for me. (laughs) But I think Kyle likes it too. But... Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter in Ecclesiastes 12. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. So the question we really want to ask this morning is, what is this fear of the Lord that begins knowledge, that prolongs life, that turns us away from evil and ruin? Is this the kind of thing that keeps us awake, sweating at night, that paralyzes us, right? Is this the fear we think of when we think of the old movie, Bruce Almighty, where Jim Carrey stands out loud and throws his arms up and, smite me, almighty smiter, right? Is this the fear we're thinking about? Or is this the fear that keeps us on the straight and narrow? that keeps us back from the ledge, that if you're Peyton, when you have your swimmy off, keeps you from that last step into the water. What is this fear of the Lord? And the thing is, we don't like to talk about this. Fear is completely negative in our culture. We don't like fear. No one likes to be afraid. Nobody likes to be terrified. We do everything we can to avoid fear. Nobody wants to be in this position. being afraid is not a good thing. And I can easily show this, right? I could ask you guys and ask for some volunteers and, hey, what are you afraid of? But to be honest with you, it's way easier to run a Google search, which I did. 
Okay? Um, and for you adults in the audience, I know what you're afraid of. Okay? The number one fear consistently in polls? Public speaking. Okay? Number two, death. But there's a lot of others. Heights, flying, the dentist, snakes, spiders. I can see some of you are wiggling in your seats right now. <laughs> Thunderstorms, tornadoes. I am terrified of tornadoes, by the way. Uh, all these things. Parenting fails. Job problems, financial issues, wasting time. Mark Everly told me this morning he's not afraid of God. He's afraid of steps because they're so much less forgiving. Right? And kids, you guys are out there too. So don't think I've forgotten you. I know what you're afraid of too. You guys fear the dark. What's under the bed? Monsters, dinosaurs, ghosts, closets, TV shows. The one mean teacher at school. Hmm? Your favorite doctor who is bound to give you one more shot at your next visit. Some of you are afraid of water and pools. Loud noises. Bugs, strangers, all these kinds of things. And the list just goes on and on. We have these huge lists of fears. And if I kept talking to you guys about them, you would also offer me remedies. How do you avoid fear? Some of you, I can see it already. Walk through it. You got to just do it, right? Face up to it. Okay? Some of you would tell me to pray. Some would be like fast about it. There's all these remedies to fear. Some of you would even send me 2 Timothy 1.7. We all know this verse. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Wait, aren't we stuck here? God has not given us a spirit of fear. Fear the Lord? So this now feels weird. So we end up in, I, I can tell you, this is not a contradiction. Hey, this is not a contradiction. Uh, this works together, and we'll talk about that a little bit. <clears throat> But it's this idea of fearing the Lord I want to talk to you guys about today. And this is where we'll start. I want you to understand there's two types of fear. And before all the theologians and philosophers come and flag me down, I know there's more than two. (laughs) But Martin Luther, right, in his old theological works, named two. Servile fear and filial fear. Servile fear is terror. It's being afraid. What we generally associate with fear. Filial fear is this awe, this loving, this respect, this worship, this adoration of a parent. So I want to start talking about servile fear. I find that a really good way to understand these is to use some words that describe them. So here's a couple words, and I'll let these sit with you for just a second. Fight or flight. Despair. Separation. Punishment. Judgment, restrictions, hidden, shame. The best example I can give you for this type of fear uh, comes from my own story. So let me confess to all of you guys that I have been given speeding tickets twice in my life. Once was before I came here, uh, and once was a week later while I was still moving here. But for you to understand this, I have to explain something to you. Uh, For those of you who don't know, I am from Pittsburgh, right? Ghost Steelers. Um, I'm from Pittsburgh. So in Pittsburgh, we have this thing with police officers, state highway patrolmen, everything like that, and that is that they hide. They hide behind mountains, behind hills, under trees, right? They are trying to catch you. I swear, a couple of times I have seen police officers like this 
with radar guns behind trash cans. Right? And they are like out to get you. So we are on the lookout. Right? So I get admitted to grad school at Bowling Green, and I'm coming out here, and I take the turnpike, and I get across the border, and I am given this gift. A half mile ahead of me in the middle of the turnpike is this break in the median. And the police are in the, they're in the middle. I can see them from like a half mile away. This is amazing. Sometimes there's two of them, three of them. I don't care. I can see them. I can slow down. So I, the 22-year-old that I am, so wise and brilliant, start playing this game called How Fast from Pittsburgh to BG. And I fly. So this all goes into my parents moved to Columbus about the same time, and I was visiting them, and I was coming up here on a Sunday morning to look at apartments. I'm coming up 75. Many of you have made this drive. And you know on a Sunday morning, there is nobody on 75. So I'm having a good old time. Got the music on, the windows down. I'm relaxed. I'm sort of daydreaming. I'm thinking about this amazing apartment in the Millican that I'm about to see. (laughs) And what happens? Well, if you guys know, on 75, there's there's a median, but there's not a lot of the, like, breaks like there are on the turnpike. So just a little too late... I noticed the state highway patrolman coming down the other side of the highway. And you get that twinge. You all know the twinge? The I'm driving and the, mm, like the the finger's just a mm, little bit, like, oh. And then I know what you do. He drives past me, and it's the same thing you do when you drive by a police officer. No matter, it doesn't matter if you're obeying the law or not. Your eyes. Rear view, side view, rear view, side view. Where's the lights? Where's the lights? Where's the lights? And let me tell you, there were lights. So from across the highway, he clocked me. My hands go from mm, lights to, oh, right, neck like tightens down. My stomach drops. My hands tighten up like, oh, I'm in trouble now. But at least he's going to have to drive to the next break in the median. No. I thought he would slow down and, you know, take this gentle break in the median out here. I watched him. He went from probably going 80 miles an hour to 10 miles an hour in five feet. He slammed on the brakes cuts straight across the grass median, just flips his car around and comes and chases me down. Um, he told me, literally, I do not believe I'm making this up unless my memory failed. He clocked me at 88 miles an hour, so I should have been time traveling. But um, luckily, your first offense in Ohio is limited to $110 and no points, so I was still allowed to drive home. <laughs> but this is the fear, the servile fear. It is the fear of the law. It is that stomach-dropping gut-wrenching, I was caught. And this is the God we don't like to talk about, even though this description is in the scriptures. This is the fire and brimstone that we don't want to hear about. This is the God of the law. We dislike it, we attack it, we feel terribly uncomfortable with it, But it's hard to avoid, even if you look at the New Testament. In Hebrews 10, verse 30, it says, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And just in case you think this is about God judging other people, and again, the Lord will judge his people. So it's there. But we have to remember that this is fair. And you're all looking... No, that's not fair. I don't know this harsh God. Well, the Bible tells us God is perfectly good. He's written his moral law on the human heart. 
We're all responsible. And we see this in Psalms and 1 John and Romans. Beyond that, we know that God is both perfectly loving, the loving God, the God we love to talk about, but he's also perfectly just. And it is this justice that we don't like. This God is judged that we see as the vengeful, wrathful, angry, spiteful God that we do not like. And I know we don't like this. And colloquially, I can prove this. Why? It's probably at least a dozen times a week someone comes up to me, and this has happened to you. They're about to say something, or they just said something, and immediately, don't judge me. Don't judge me. No one likes to be judged. We hate this feeling. Don't judge me. I'm fine the way I am. Don't judge me. It's just how I am. It's just who I am. But that is not the case here. Romans 3.23 says it most clearly. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Right? We all miss the mark. In fact, this is so foundational in our Christian faith that it's even laced through the catechisms. And some of you may not be familiar with catechisms. Catechisms are tools. They're question and answer texts. They give us questions and answers to help us understand our faith better, to make it clear, and they're very short. This fall, we're actually going to start using one of those in our children's ministry called the New City Catechism. Uh, It's a great uh, catechism put together by Tim Keller. But I want to point out two questions out of that because it, it just sums this up wonderfully. Question 13 says, can anyone keep the law of God perfectly? And the answer Since the fall, no mere human has been able to keep the law of God perfectly, but consistently breaks it in thought, word, and deed. Question 18, will God allow our disobedience and idolatry to go unpunished? The answer is no. Every sin is against the sovereignty, against the holiness, the goodness of God, and against his righteous law. And God is righteously angry with our sins and will punish them in his just judgment both in this life and in the life to come. You see, this fear, this is the fear that the unbeliever will experience when they stand before God, whether they believe in him or not. This is the same fear we find when we try to do it ourselves, when we try to be good enough, when we try to be holy enough, when we try to keep God's law perfectly but can't. To be honest, this this is the fear that keeps me up at night. I'm finally old enough in my life where I've seen enough people go before me. My grandparents, Liz's grandparents, members of this congregation, friends and family. I've watched others pass. And I know that for me too, my eyes will close. My last breath will leave my body. And I will stand before God and have to give account of who I am. Of what I did. And that's... Of all the things that keep me awake at night, that's the one that terrifies me the most, is standing before this God who I know loves me, but is holy and must judge the wrongs. This is the same fear that Peyton should have felt, right, or did feel that moment when she stepped to the edge without swimmies, took one step, and her head was underwater. This is the fear of the law. This is the fear of judgment. But I do want to point out, we have to hold this in balance. I am not the fire and brimstone preacher. (laughs) 
In preparation for this talk, Kyle gave me this great book, The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God by D.A. Carson. It's an old book. It's a short book, and I'd highly recommend it. But he says this more perfectly than I ever could. He says that wrath, unlike love, is not one of the intrinsic perfections of God. Wrath isn't part of God. It's not in his character. It's not him. But it's a function of his holiness against sin. When there's no sin, there is no wrath. But there will always be love in God, where God in his holiness confronts his image bearers, us, those who are made like God, in their rebellion, in our sin, in our failure. There must be wrath, or God is not the jealous God he claims to be, and his holiness is impugned. It's made small, belittled, and he is no longer a holy God. The price of diluting God's wrath is diminishing God's holiness. So I want you to remember that God does not judge, doesn't punish because he's wrathful, spiteful, mean, angry, bully of the universe. He does so because he must because he is holy. He does so because he must because he is holy. But if this is the only fear we knew, and this is the same thing that theologians will call initial fear, the fear of the unbeliever when they're confronted with God, we would be in a sort of sad place. Terrified all the time. Can we live up to the expectations did I do enough good works that I outweigh this balance and I'm on the good rather than the bad, right? How will, I, how will I get past this mark? But remember, I told you there's a second kind of fear. And it's not this servile fear, the fear of judgment. It's called filial fear, this deep awe and respect. And that's the fear we actually read about in Proverbs. So let me read this to you. Proverbs 1-7 from the Amplified Version of the Bible. This really paints the picture well. You remember Proverbs 1.7 said, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fools despise wisdom and knowledge. In the Amplified Version, it's stated like this. The reverent fear of the Lord, that is, worshiping him and regarding him as truly awesome, is the beginning and preeminent part of knowledge, both its starting point and essence. But arrogant fools despise skillful and godly wisdom and instruction and self-discipline. This type of healthy fear can be described as parental, experiencing awe, wonder. In the same way I said before, words that describe this are certainty, confidence, cheerful obedience, grace, love, freedom. To quote Sproul, quoting Luther, he says, it is a filial fear, the fear of a child who is in awe of his father and doesn't want to do anything that would violate his father and disrupt their loving relationship. This is the fear that we experience of our creator. When you sit back and think about all creation, about the awe of our bodies, how they function and work, of children being born into this world, or of this universe that is perfectly balanced on a knife's edge. And if it were a little bit either way, we wouldn't be here. You can ask Jeffrey Kirkbride about that. He'll fill you in. But it is awesome, right? That is the awe, the deep respect that we fear, this, or feel. This is the fear that also inspires imitation of wanting to be like the one that you fear, right? We want to be like God, and we see this in Ephesians. We're commanded to do this as Christians. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. This is perhaps my favorite description uh, and I have a small example for you here, uh, courtesy of my son. And just before you guys play the video, you, you can bring the video up if you want. Just know I'd really appreciate it if you pay attention because to get this in this sermon, this cost me a full roll of bubble tape. <laughs> right? 
So if you have the video. I know who you are. I engineer. Now tell me again, how did you um, know that that's what an engineer looked like? Um, because. Did someone have stuff like that in their pocket? Uh-huh. Who was it? Do you remember? No, I don't remember. Oh. Was it a guy or a girl? I think it was a guy. Gotcha. At, at like school or something? No. Where? Like at, like at, at church. Oh, gotcha. Okay, cool. So, first off, I'm taking credit for my son wanting to imitate me. Because uh, I'm a software engineer and an engineer by degree. Uh, but I would also like to thank whoever turned my son into a card-carrying member of the Pocket Protector Club. Right? But this is what this healthy fear leads to. And this is the gospel. Folks, this is the gospel. This is the why imitate Christ, why imitate our Father. Well, because this holy, holy, holy God in perfect love knew that our sin, our shortcoming, our failure had to be judged and judged justly. And the sentence to be handed down, everlasting separation from God in hell. That's it. There's one, there is one punishment for this. So what does the loving God do? What does this holy, holy, holy loving God do? He says, "Mm -mm. I want you with me. So he takes the judgment upon himself. He chooses the cross. As Max Locato said, he chose the nails. He takes the judgment so that we don't have to. And it is this love demonstrated in God's action that creates this healthy fear in us. This awe, this respect, this adoration, this worship, this desire to imitate him, to be like him. Not to be like him and obedient because we're terrified of the judge that will smite us or correct us, but because we love our Father and we want to be like he is. This is where we end up in Hebrews 4.16. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. This is the fear experienced by the believer, where we freely live and play in the throne room of our loving Father, ever seeking to imitate him, always living under his protection, guidance, and love, but never forgetting that we live and play in the throne room of the one true king. This is the gospel of Christ, the gospel of grace and mercy, where a holy and loving God that must judge our failure to be holy, to be perfect, takes the judgment on himself. This is the loving God that doesn't say, be good enough or else. This is the loving God that says, I want you. Come be with me. Come be like me. Come enjoy me and experience me forever. This type of fear is the fear that flourishes. When we both remember our rightful place before God, one of judgment, and then encounter the love of God that takes that judgment on himself, and leads us to true freedom. This is fear that longs to submit every aspect of our lives to Christ, that conforms our actions to Christ, that makes us want to imitate him. This is the type of fear that does not fear judgment, but accepts discipline that leads to growth, 
And this is the type of fear that lives in confidence, boldly coming before Christ, before the Father and King, knowing we are not condemned but loved. This is Peyton with a healthy fear of water, not taking one more step without putting her swimmies back on. So, let me ask you this. Is there a place in your life where you've thrown off your swimmies and you now find yourself sinking? Is there a place where you've discarded God's plan, God's design, where you do not have a healthy fear of the Lord in your life? Maybe that lack of fear has led to new feelings of being afraid. Maybe it's of debt, divorce, brokenness, addiction, a wide range of things. Perhaps your entire life seems somehow askew, out of balance. Where do you need to remember the fear of the Lord and start imitating Christ instead of imitating the world? Perhaps you don't fear the Lord at all. And that's okay. And this is a safe place for that, to come and talk and ask and explore what the fear of the Lord looks like and what it is and why it is. But let this today for all of us be our call and our challenge to reach out to the Father through Christ and come to a healthy fear. I would like to challenge everybody to do one thing this week. Take one minute. That's all I'm asking. One minute every day. No phones, no family, no screens, no noise, no job. I know this is almost impossible to find. But one minute. And think about the fear of the Lord and how it changes your life and impacts the way you live. Do you stand afraid of the Lord? Are you not afraid of the Lord? Which parts of your life have you held back from being encompassed by the fear of the Lord? But let this today be that reminder for us to come before Christ, before our Father, to recognize what has been done for us, not what we were able to do. To be grateful and come before him in awe and reverence, recognizing that he has saved us from drowning in our sin and in our failure. Let this today be your invitation to come to him to start building or rebuilding your fear and your wisdom anew. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day and thank you for your fear. Thank you for instilling fear of the Lord in us, of letting us feel the terror of judgment, but also the true fear, the healthy fear that respects and loves and imitates you. Thank you for your son. Thank you for taking the judgment on yourself so that we can stand and be called yours. In your name, amen.